Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi guys, welcome. Thank you much for, so much for joining us tonight. My name's Emily and I'm a bookseller at Skylight Books. I'll be your host this evening. Um, if you're not familiar with us, Skylight Books is a general interest independent bookstore located in Los Feliz. Uh, we're open for in-store browsing right now from 10 a.m. to 7, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on the weekends and 11 to 7 on weekdays. Uh, but you can also shop online at skylightbooks.com. We're so, so happy you could join us for this virtual event featuring The Low Desert by Todd Goldberg in conversation with Mark Haskell-Smith. We're going to start off tonight with a reading, um, and I just want to intro our authors a little bit here. So Todd is Todd Goldberg is the author of more than a dozen books, including Gangsterland, a finalist for the Hammett Prize, Gangster Nation, The House of Secrets, co-authored with Brad Meltzer, and Living Dead Girl, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Review of Books, Las Vegas Weekly, and the Best American Essays, among other publications. He lives in Indio, California, where he directs the low residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performance arts at the University of California, Riverside. He is joined tonight by Mark Haskell-Smith, who is the author of six novels with one world titles, including Moist and Blown as well as the nonfiction books Heart of Dankness and Naked at Lunch. A new nonfiction title, Rude Talk in Athens, Comedy, de- Democracy, and the Most Important Writer You've Never Heard Of is forthcoming in August 2021 for an unnamed press, which you will be able to pre-order through Skylight. Thank you so much for joining us. And now to turn it over to Todd. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming. So, Mark, nice to see you. Thanks for coming also. Oh, I've just been informed that I have to do a reading. Now, if you know me, you know I love going to a reading. So, we're going to make this as painless as possible. I'm going to read a little bit of a short story uh, called Goon Number 4, which is the actual personal favorite short story of my dear editor, Dan Smetanka. Of all the stories in the book, this is the one he loved the most. That's not true. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So all you need to know for the setup of this short story, and I promise I won't read for for terribly long, um, is that the main character is one of those nameless, faceless goons that you see in the background of a crime book or crime movie holding the, the gun or the suitcase filled with money. And you always sort of sit there and look at him and wonder, like, what is that dude's life like? Um, And my dude has decided to retire and go back to school. And so this is his first day back to school. So I'm just going to read for just a little bit. If you have the book at home, it's on page 105. The next Monday, the start of spring semester, Blake showed up for his 10 a.m. class promptly at 9.30 a.m. Because when you're a goon, you recon. The class was held in a classroom inside the radio station offices located across the street from the main campus next door to a sprawling Mormon church and a gated community called Rancho del Sol. It looked to to Blake like maybe the college had bought a house, did a light remodel, and then built a radio tower in the backyard. He'd seen a similar setup at a Sinola stronghold in Mexico, where the bosses ran their own private radio, TV, and and internet network, though the college's desert setup wasn't nearly as nice. There was a classroom filled with Max on his left, Blake thought it probably used to be the garage. 
and then a couple studios for the DJ down the hall in what used to be the living room, dining room, and family room. The house from the 70s, back when people had family rooms. Other side of the house were faculty offices, a lounge, two bathrooms. There were emergency exits in every room. The whole place was maybe 2,500 square feet and could be attacked from about 29 different angles. A totally unsafe spot to conduct an op. But Blake guessed it was probably fine for learning. The classroom tables were set up in a U, so Blake took a seat against the southern wall, giving him a view of all the entrances and exits. Took out his Smith & Wesson tactical pen. It was a ballpoint, but it was made of aircraft steel. The cap was sharp enough to pierce a sternum with enough force and or pop out a car window, and it weighed over a pound. So if he held it in his hand and punched someone in the face, he'd collapse their skull. And then he took out a pad of paper and waited. A woman in black jeans, black boots, a black scoop neck t-shirt, and huge black sunglasses came into the classroom in a flustered rush, dropped a book bag and a laptop at the podium at the front of the room, then spilled her Starbucks on the ground, coffee splashing all over her, the podium, the whiteboard. And Blake was surprised to see even the low cottage cheese ceiling. Shit, fuck, motherfuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, she said. And then hurried back out, returning a few moments later with a roll of paper towels, only then noticing Blake. How long have you been sitting there? 23 minutes. So you saw that whole production? Yes. And you didn't laugh? It didn't seem funny. It's always funny when your professor spills coffee all over herself, she said. It's what makes going to school worthwhile. She stood on one of the chairs. Help me here so I don't break my neck while I clean off the ceiling. All six feet, five inches, and 245 pounds of Blake stood up, and the professor seemed visibly surprised. Check that. You get up here. I'll make sure you don't break your neck. Blake had some experience cleaning spatters of fluids off of hard-to-reach places, so it was no big deal. Back when he was starting out, he did a month working for a Latvian oil scion, two-bit gangster named Vitaly Ozolis, who was constantly losing his shit and shooting someone in the face. Since Blake was the lowest goon, he'd have to drag the body out, bury it, then come back and clean the room. So he had a whole checklist, literally, that he kept in a utility closet in the warehouse that contained Vitaly's fleet of a dozen cars. This was a significantly easier job. He climbed up on the chair, took his K-bar knife out of his cargo pants pocket, scraped the latte-stained cottage cheese pellets off into his hand, then got down, dumped it all into the garbage. Thank you, she said. She extended her hand and Blake shook it. I'm Professor Rhodes, but you can call me Dusty. That's what everyone calls me, as you probably know. How would I know that? From the radio, Dusty Rhodes, the morning zoo on KRIP? I don't listen to the radio. Well, we'll fix that. What's your name? Blake, he said. No last name? Blake wasn't used to giving a stranger all of his details, but he guessed she probably had a roster anyway. Webster, Blake Webster. You'll need a different name for radio, she said. Your name makes you sound like that guy you went to high school with who still lives in the same town and is now assistant manager at Del Taco. I did grow up here, he said. Oh, she said. What do you do for a job? Goon, he said. Assassin. Private security. Depends on the assignment. This made Professor Rhodes laugh. Can you imagine what a life what a life that would be? She gazed at Blake for a, mere, for a moment. I hereby christen thee Blake Danger. How about that? And then hijinks ensue. Oh no, I brought myself back up. I meant to bring Mark <laughs> up. I'm here to I'm talk sure. to you about the book. I'll hide now. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing and reading for us. I liked her pain. Painted expression. She's just like, oh, like, oh God, why is he uh, still talking? Why did I suggest this? <laughs> uh, thank you, 
uh, Todd for reading and Skylight for hosting this event. Yes. And yeah, it's very nice. And thank you everyone for coming. Yeah, it's so nice to see everybody. And all the places where you are, like Liska hiding in Mexico. I see Liska yeah. there, expatriate Liska. She should have got a better lawyer. Yeah. She wouldn't have had to run. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was going to ask you some sort of like legitimate questions. I'm prepared. Of just shooting the shit. So, okay. Uh, I was thinking about it, you know. This, so for, first I'm going to like uh, talk about your book a little bit. That's it right there. Yeah. Look at that pretty book. Beautiful cover. Pretty... Best book cover of my entire career. I tell you, you wait long enough and they give you the book cover you want. <laughs> right? Uh, I think it's like your best, some of your best work. Thank you. And Yeah. And, and uh, so I was, I'm getting this really weird echo in my head. So if I sound weird, that's me. You want um, me to put on headphones? Will that help you? I have headphones. That's what you want me to put on headphones? I think it's from my rig. Hang on. Maybe that works. Can I Hello? hear you? Hello. No, that's not. All right. We'll just muddle through. It was working fine before. Okay. But whatever. Um, <clears throat> so you've written all these novels, gangster yeah. novels, and um, quite successfully. And so I was wondering why short stories? What was the impetus? Um, well, there were a couple reasons. You know, one of them is sort of a a simple issue of physical well-being, which is I'd written three really long books in a row. You know, I'd written uh, Gangster Land and The House of Secrets and Gangster Nation back to back to back. Um, and they were each over 450 pages long in my computer. Um, and I was really, really, really tired of writing books um, because I, I, I felt like I had not been out in the world in four years. Um, and that was really rectified by this year, staying home a lot. That was helpful. <laughs> um, and so in my mind, you know, I, I was like, gosh, I really would like to recharge by writing some short stories. Like that was an idea that was already in my head. And also, you know, I'd gotten to the point a little bit with writing this same character for a thousand pages in the Rabbi David Cohen, Sal Cooper team, where I was a little tired of that voice, of writing that voice, because it's not like these are little 200 page novels, you know, these are long, dense things. Um, so the notion of writing short stories within this universe was really appealing to me because I could write in a different voice. I could explore some story ideas that I, I had to expand the world of these books that perhaps would not be in the main story for Rabbi Cohen, Sal Cooper team, um, but that I might keep writing these books anyway, because here's, here's the important thing. For, and for those of you just joining us uh, or just joining my career, there's these two books, Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, and they're about a hitman named Sal Cupertine who hides out in Las Vegas as a rabbi named David Cohen. His story is going to end. You know, he's not just going to sit in a cemetery and wait for someone to show up and then he kills that person. And there's another book where he waits in the cemetery and kills a guy. Um, you know, his story is going to have a conclusion. But what I have found in writing these books and writing these stories is that the universe I've created is large and it encompasses a lot of people that I think I can write about and that are interesting. And writing the short stories allowed me to explore those. Um, so there's that side of it. Um, the other side of it is sort of a, frankly, brazenly tactical thing, which is um, you know, we'd sold the, uh, the TV rights for the Gangsterland books, and I wanted, I wanted there to be more stuff. Um, I wanted there to be better and more interesting B stories if we wanted them. And if I wrote within the universe of these books, I could have that for the TV show as well, whenever that should, should come to pass. Um, so there was that. Um, but as I was writing the stories, you know, what happened is this, this idea of this thing I do in between novels began to take a different shape. And the book itself began to be a study of not just like, you know, sort of funny gangster stories, but about what happens when you drop a pebble into water. And the pebble in the water here is also what launches the novels, which is 
in the novels, there's a man named Dark Billy Cupertine who is jumped, who jumped or thrown off of a building in Chicago in 1973. And that causes all these changes in a crime family in Chicago. And so you know how that happens in the books because you get to see Sal Cupertine rise up and be this great big hitman. But I wanted to show that that pebble being dropped in the water in 1973 could also affect the life of a cocktail waitress in Palm Springs. Like that those ripples are going to spread out and out and out and you never know what they're going to run into. And that's what the story collection really began to become as I was writing it is an examination, not just of crime, but of the, the aftermath of crime. Right, and I think that that's one of the things I, I like about these stories so much is because so many times in a genre books, you get like someone gets killed, the night watchman gets shot in the head, and then that's, they move on. Right. I always think, well, he had a family, he had a thing, he had hopes, he had dreams. And th these characters explore those hopes and dreams, you know, in a way. Yeah. And, you know, that notion of like the sort of the red shirts that beam down with Captain Kirk and just get sort of, you know, zapped and eviscerated. Like, even when I was a kid, I was like, well, like, who's going to call his family? Like, you guys on planet Iptor just disappeared. Like, just he, he does, there's no body. What's happening to him? Like, when they get back to the ship, are they going to have a funeral? And like, they never mention the poor red shirt again. Um, and that's really what Goon Number Four, the story I just read, was about. Is you know, like everyone that's involved with this has a life outside of the crime that they're involved in. They have someone who loves right. them. They have a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister, or a dog, whatever it is that is being affected by whatever happens to them in any given situation. Yeah, I, I, that really comes through, and and you, and I just like also the way that sort of the stories are linked in a way. Mm -hmm. um, like, I here's how I read it. Right, so I read it one of your stories that I read a chapter in George Saunders' "A Swim in the Pond in the Rain." A great book. I have it right here. <laughs> and uh, then I'd read another one of yours. And so somehow the Goldberg, Chekhov, Tolstoy, Goldberg sandwich, <laughs> it worked really well. Um, but I was really surprised by about halfway through the book, I was like, oh, these connect. These all are starting to resonate with each other. Right. And uh, was that intentional or did that just kind of happen? It was, it was absolutely intentional. And a few of the stories are old. Um, and I rewrote them to have better connections. I had inexplicably over the years while writing stories built these connective bridges anyway, mostly to sort of uh, amuse myself <laughs> as I was writing them. Like, oh, I'm going to make this person so-and-so's cousin or, or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, as I was writing these stories and I was, I was looking at the, um, at the older stories and, and trying to figure out how to make them resonate, I was like, you know what I'm going to do is, even if they're not connected literally by story, I'm going to make sure that they are connected um, thematically. Mm -hmm. So even a story, so for instance, the title story of the book, um, The Low Desert, is not connected to the larger gangster universe that I've, I've written about, but it is connected to the results of that universe, you know, that the the allowance of criminal behavior to keep happening um, throughout the country. And I'm going to figure out how to turn off the texts on this computer so that all of you stop <laughs> hearing my brother Lee texting me. But I don't know how. Um, he's, and he's going, I can see you. I can see you on the TV. Uh, I'm going to remove this from the dock. There we go. <laughs> Done. Okay. Um, so, so those connections are intentional for sure. And what was it like taking those old uh, stories and kind of remixing them? It was hard um, because also, you know, you're looking at yourself from years and years and years ago. I guess I didn't figure out how to turn that, turn that sound off. <laughs> um, it, was, it was hard. Hey, Wendy, could you text Lee and tell him to stop texting me? <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask my wife. <laughs> um, it, it was really hard. Um, because so for instance, there's a short story in the book called The Last Good Man. And I had originally written that story in 1996. Um, and I had rewritten it several times over the years 
because it involves this character, Morris Drew, who appears in The Low Desert, the title story, um, and then also in the short story, The Salt. Um, and his backstory kept changing as I wrote more and more about him. Um, and so when I went back to rewrite those stories, it's, I'm changing the backstory, but I'm also looking at a picture of myself at 25 years old, trying mm -hmm. to figure out like, what was I thinking when I wrote this story at 25? Like I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to write. And I was writing about a 75 year old man. Um, so all of those things were more challenging than I thought they would be. Um, but the, the larger issue really is um, allowing for repetition. Um, and this is, in fact, something that George Saunders talks about in his, in his fantastic yeah. book about the, uh, the Russians, is not to be afraid of repeating themes, um, not to be afraid of re repeating um, scenes, because what I realized is that these sorts of things happen to our characters over and over and over again because they're in similar situations and not to be afraid of that sort of thing. Um, and so that was hard and challenging, but also extraordinarily gratifying for me to be able to recognize like, okay, there are things I can do that might seem similar, but each character is going to approach them in a way that makes it different, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you actually finish some stories too. Yeah. Like I'd always wondered about the, the Russian adoptee story and, and then you ex blew it out. Well, we can't tell anyone about that. No, it's a, I mean, you know, you, you uh, enlarged it. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a short story in this book, Palm Springs, that also appeared in my short story collection, Other Resort Cities, about um, a cocktail waitress who adopts a girl, a child from Russia, and that child runs away. And I wrote a new story about it, or two new stories about the same thing for this book, but I didn't know what had happened to the, the child. I never really knew in my mind what had happened. And uh, my lovely agent, or not agent, editor, Dan and I had a conversation one day where he was like, you gotta solve that. You gotta solve that in this book. And then I did. Um, and we won't tell people where it happens, but you know, you, you find out what, you know, you find out. And I have to tell you, like, I had lived with these characters for a really long time. You know, I, I first wrote the short story Palm Springs in 2007 for the literary magazine Hot Metal Bridge, which at the time was being edited by uh, Carolyn Kellogg, the former editor of the LA Times uh, book section. And so this character lived in my head for 12 years, 13 years, something like that, 14 years. Um, and to sort of have that character always living somewhere behind my brain and then never solving all of her problems had just been sort of a nagging thing. And to finally do it was um, was like saying goodbye to a family member after they text you over and over and over again <laughs> during a live podcast. Well, it's interesting uh, because all of your characters have some similarities. They're always searching for a better life in some ways. And so do you have all these people living in your head all the time? And Yeah. Um, you know, I I still have characters living in my head from, from books I'm never going to write again. You know, like I still have Michael Weston from writing, you know, burn notice novels <laughs> in my head. Which is, it, it becomes more interesting only when, um, like, I can't find my keys or something. And I'll say to Wendy, my wife, like, I can't find my keys. And she'll be like, well, you're Michael Weston. Just <laughs> buy it out. You're the detective. You go find it. You can figure it out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, I it's such a strange thing. But I think the difference between being a crazy person on the street who, you know, talks to God and... Uh, and a novelist is usually publication, right? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> for the number of for the number of voices that we deal with in our minds at any given time. Um, but you know, the, for me, the the primary voice in my head all the time right now is this Rabbi David Cohen, um, South Cupertine voice, and so I I allowed that style of writing to still be used in this book, even when he doesn't appear in every single story. And when he does appear, hopefully it's a bit of a, a surprise. Um, because I think it, it has become sort of an all-purpose gangster voice for me. Right. And, um, and I think that sort of suits some of these stories well. But then, you know, I like to be able to change it up like you do in the stories from a, 
a woman's point of view. Um, you know, really what a short story collection allowed me to do and allows, you know, other writers to do as well is to try on a lot of different outfits and find out how they fit and, and whether they look good on you. Um, with a body like mine, that's not hard. You know, I'm just sort of right. made for the runway. Um, so you but, get to cross-dress a right. little bit, which is everyone enjoys. But to be able to tell stories from all those different voices and then tie it all together in a cohesive narrative form, that's, that was the hard work. Um, that was the, the sitting right here and sort of, you know, pinching my skin together, hoping that I could figure out how to do things. <laughs> I also like that characters trying to like find a better life they move to the desert or the Salton sea right <laughs> well i mean there's sort of a rich history of this you know resort towns are weird you know if any of you in the audience have not spent a lot of time in a resort town when when there's not people on vacation there's a definite like sketchy underbelly or like vegas in the morning right like when you wake up early in Vegas and you look and like you're like, oh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna walk down the strip and get some coffee, and you're like, this is the most disgusting place I've ever been in my entire life. Like the smell of urine has never been more pervasive, except in the frat house I lived in. Um you know, that I love that sketchiness because I love the the coat of paint that has to go over it to fool you again. Um, but living in the desert, living in Palm Springs for the majority of my life now. Um, but always having gone to resort cities, you know, I, I was coming here when I was a kid when I lived in Northern California, um, but also like fishing resorts in the Pacific Northwest, places like that. You're always getting scammed. You know, you're always getting conned because the people yeah. don't really like you. And so <laughs> when you go there for your vacation, you're like, oh, my God, I had a great time. Everyone was so nice to me. They hate you. They hate you and they want you to go home. And I love that we pretend that the people working at the hotel where we're staying are just so happy to have us there. They're not. They want you to go the fuck home. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say like that blue sky noir kind of thing. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You get that a lot in Hawaii where it's like, you know, we would eat you and throw you in a volcano if we could. But, but. Right. I mean, and. That's what I learned from Dog the Bounty Hunter. Like, oh, yeah, the people at the West and don't care that I'm here on my, my honeymoon. <laughs> they want me to leave. <laughs> Although they gave you chocolate dipped strawberries. So right. they care a little bit. <laughs> Those aren't quite good. <laughs> so speaking of characters, what is this? What's with this epitaph, epigram here? A prisoner cannot free himself. That's sort of the guiding principle of the whole book. It's from the Talmud. Um, so for those of you who are not Jews, uh, mm -hmm. Talmud is sort of a book of Jewish thought. So it's not the Bible or the Torah, but it's like laws and aphorisms and stories um, that buttress the Jewish faith, essentially. And so that's, that's uh, an aphorism from the Talmud. Um, but it's thematically... Um, the aim of, of everything I'm writing in the book, and I don't typically think about theme all that much, um, as my students can attest, um, but but that was my principle. In each story, I was going to give my characters a chance to free themselves. I was going to give them a choice to make. And if they made the right choice, they get to have a happy life. If they make the wrong choice, you know, some clown shit might happen. You know, you don't, want some clown shit to happen, if, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and, you know, for the last several books that I've written about the hitman rabbi, I've been using quotes from the Talmud at the front of all of those books. And if you read closely, they always provide a, um, you know, a path to where those books are going. Um, and, you know, the, the, the one thing that I, I think of often from the Talmud um, and that appears in the Gangsterland books, but also is something I thought about uh, when writing these short stories. It really is a good guiding principle. And I, I found it in a book right over here uh, that had belonged to my grandfather a thousand years ago. And it's this book of Jewish thoughts. And there's all these quotes from the Talmud in it. And the quote is, uh, if a man comes to kill you, wake up early and kill him first. Like that's in, that's like the, the rules of Judaism. 
It's a solid, solid bro. It's a solid, solid piece of advice. Um, it's not technically speaking legal per se. <laughs> to say well, times. I killed him because I thought he was coming soon to kill me. <laughs> but that could be that like that that could be the why of every single story in this book is well, someone's gonna kill me, so I, I got up early and I shot him first. Yeah, I do that. Um what is it about clowns? <laughs> so, <laughs> so there is a clown that appears in this book. We won't spoil it for anybody. It's in the first story, so you should and you should read the book in order instantly. Oh yeah, I meant to say that. Viewers, read the book in order. This is very important. Um, so, as you know, Mark, um, and as some of the folks in the chat know, in the Greater Coachella Valley. There are two clowns that work the bars and the restaurants in the greater Coachella Valley. Now, you might be saying to yourself, that sounds insane. When we're done, I want you to go Google Harpo the Clown in Palm Springs, and you can then see exactly what we're talking about. But so there's this clown, Harpo, that I've known personally for 35 years, 40 years, something. I'm 50 now, so I moved here when I was 14, so I've known him for 36 years. He doesn't speak. He's dressed in full clown all the time, 100% of the time full clown. Like, there's never a point, like, you go into Arby's and he's just there without the wig. No, full clown all the time. Um, And he shows up in bars and restaurants, and people are just like, hey, Harpo. And he just kind of walks around and takes pictures and honks a horn, and it's creepy as hell. And it freaks me the fuck out every single time. There's a bar in uh, in Indian Wells called The Nest. Oh, yeah. And it is the actual human breeding ground of the human pampiloma virus. Like, that's where it was started. That's where it propagates. <laughs> and it is a pickup joint for the plus 70 set. And every Friday night, you go in there. They play Baby Got Back, and there's Nana and, and Papa Sai shaking that shit, and then in will walk the fucking clown. So it's horrifying. And so I just decided I gotta I gotta put that clown or a version of a clown into a book of stories about the desert because if you live here, you know, and if you right. don't live here, you're like. Well, that's just the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But now it turns out Harpo's got competition. There's a another clown who dresses like Charlie Chaplin and walks around with the cane and everything. It's the most horrifying thing you've ever seen. And also doesn't speak. I don't know what is up with these clowns that don't talk. Like if you're gonna be clowning, at least talk. Yeah, like a mouthy clown. Yeah, a mouthy clown. Like, you know, homie the clown. Homie the clown I could get behind. I don't want some fucking silent clown. That's creepy as hell. The silent clown, clown is creepy. I think they're probably just drug dealers. <laughs> I hope so. Right? What I score? Uh, just look for a clown. It's like so simple. It's beautiful. <laughs> yes, your clown is scary, and I was thinking, like, well, it's not like Fellini's clowns, which are nice right. and fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing you you do that I really enjoy so much in your stories is we put super competent people in a situation where wannabes and posers try to act competent. Yes, I do do that. <laughs> do you get some sort of enjoyment from torturing posers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what it is? Um, I mean, it, it's one of those things, Mark, that I suspect you and I share, which is when you walk into a situation and you get the sense that you are the funniest person in the room and you're looking to see if someone else can make other people laugh and you're just like, that's not going to work. That person is not very funny. Um, I, I love seeing someone clown themselves in front of an expert. I just, I love it on YouTube. Uh, and and on on YouTube, like it could just be like, you know, those videos of instant karma, like bully picks the wrong bar, you know, right. where it's like a guy goes and robs a cop bar. You're like, oh God, that moron. Um, but also we're in a period of time in our lives uh, where everyone thinks that they have the answer to something or that they're an expert on something immediately upon encountering it. And, and I'm no different. Like I'll watch 
the Winter Olympics for 10 minutes. And I'll be like, that is not how you curl. That is not how you, that is. You're never going to win. That is some weak broom action. Yeah, it's like, you don't sweep like that. Well, who taught you to sweep? Or like, you know, I'm watching some these gymnastics and I'm like, uh, I don't know how she didn't stay on that. I'm like, I, I can't walk through my house without banging my elbow on something. And I'm telling Simone Biles how to leap off of a thing. <laughs> and so I love, um, I love the, uh, the hubris of humans to mm. begin to, to tell other people how to do their lives. Um, and, you know, the part of it too is even in, in real life, sometimes I'll encounter like so. There was one time a mutual friend of ours and I were in a place that we had just done a book event, and a uh, a person in the audience basically said, "Ah, oh, you used to not be a very good writer, but you've really gotten much better." To our friend, and our friend was just like, uh, "And I just lost it." And I was like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you ever say that to somebody?" Like. Like what? What possessed you to say you weren't a very good writer, but you're a much better writer now? Oh my God, you were so crap before. Like, what kind? Of, who hurt you as a child that you would say this to this person? And everyone was just sort of like, uh, "What?" what? And then I was like, "Oh, I, I guess I said it all out loud." <laughs> right. The appropriate response is thank you. Right. And sometimes I don't have that ability. So I like to do that in my stories, oftentimes, and and a little bit of it comes from. Um, from forcing conflict sometimes. Like I'm in the middle of a, a scene and I think, okay, I need to make this turn the direction that I want it to turn. I'm, I'm going to put these two people in opposition to each other. Yeah, it's, but it's so much fun too because you see people, their minds have been polluted by like TV or whatever. And they like think, oh, I know how to be a badass. And then you go, you meet a real badass. And <laughs> right. Like, oh. I believe the term is fuck around and find out. <laughs> Get schooled. Uh, uh, so let's see. Uh, I, let me go to, I'm gonna. Go, we got a lot of questions piling up. Okay. So, oh, here's one from question. from uh, Marit in Pasadena, California. Oh, um, how do you decide the order stories in a collection should go in when they are in the same universe but not linear in the same way one of the novels in this world is? That's a fantastic question. There's a great essay that was written, gosh, maybe 20 years ago by a writer named David Jouse um, called Stacking Stones. And it is about how you order short story collections. And that's always been influential to me in thinking about these things. And then the, you know, this is my third collection of short stories that I've written. And you really want to, um, in my view, you want to stack those stones in a way that is both surprising that they're that they're holding on to each other, but when you get to the end, really seem like a, a perfect structure. Um, and that is a better metaphor than I've ever had for what I just said. I wish I'd written that down. Someone remind me of this. Text me. Not now. Lee's texting me. Um, <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna read all of Lee's texts when we're done. Um, so you know we're. It, it really is about creating the ebb and the flow of the emotion, for sure. Um, but also, you know, part of it is a conversation that my editor and I are having, Dan and I are having, about, you know, what we're trying to say about this book. You know, what what do we want the beginning to feel like? What do we want the middle to feel like? What do we want the end to feel like? What's the, what's the overall tone? And so, for instance, um, the short story that I read a bit from at the beginning, Goon Number 4, uh, I rewrote that short story a ton from its original version. So I, I wrote that short story for an anthology um, that came out uh, last summer that Lawrence Block edited called uh, The Darkling Halls of Ivy, and it's all crime stories that take place in academia. And it's a, it's a really broad satire in that anthology because that's what I wanted to do, and it, there's nothing else around it by me. It's just me. And I knew I wanted it in this book, but the satire was so broad that it didn't feel like it could ever fit inside of it. And I didn't see that initially, but Dan did. And he's like, look, you know, you can have this be a funny story, but in order for it to actually land inside of this book, you've got to scale back the absurdity or else it's going to make 
all the serious things you talk about seem irrelevant. And it was sort of a dawning moment of like, oh, a thing can be one thing in one place and another thing in another place, still be the same basic story, but how it's perceived is based on how it's perceived with the stuff around it. And so in ordering the short story collection, we really spent a lot of time with that notion. The other side of it is there are, in this book, six stories that are two, two three story sets, three, two triptyches of uh, stories. And we really had to make sure that we set them apart in different ways so that you didn't get all of it at one time because there are um, big dramatic reveals that we wanted. You know, I want, I want to start the book with a gasp and I want to end it with a gasp. And in between, I want to shock you and surprise you and move you. Um, and in order to do that, I have to set you up. I have to set up the joke sometimes and I have to set up the murder sometimes, even though the stories themselves aren't intimately connected the emotion is, if that makes sense. Right. No, that, that that balance is really important for what you're doing. And particularly like that story about the thug, it's, it, I can see it played totally for laughs, but the part that's heartbreaking about it is how he's trying to sincerely integrate right. into community college with his skill set. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's, so it's funny, but it's also like, it's it's poignant. Yeah, because it's someone who has been one thing his entire life and is trying to be something else. And finding out that everything that he's known before, all the rules that he thought applied to his life, don't apply in the same way in the real world. No one wants to feel like an, an anachronism, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I should say that, like when I said earlier that the stories were linked, they do really build on each other in a beautiful way. I mean, it's like they, they're very resonant, I should Thank say. You. Yeah. Um, here, let, let's go to another question. Um, are there any stories, this is from Rob Bowman. Are there any stories that you suspect you may be tempted to revisit and expand someday? Yeah. Um, the title story, The Low Desert. Um, for sure, that one. Um, you know, that will either be a book, or it'll be a TV show. It'll be something, um, because I'm I'm not done telling the story of um, organized crime at the Salton Sea. You know, I have a I have a bit of a champagne problem, which is I have books under contract uh, that I have to write um, and that I want to write. So that's important. Um, but this is a story I've been trying to tell for a really long time, and I said this elsewhere recently, uh, I don't remember where, but I remember these words coming out of my mouth, which is that like, I had the ambition to do certain things, but I didn't have the talent yet. And I had the ambition to tell the story about organized crime at the Salton Sea in the 1960s, but I didn't have the talent yet. And now finally, I feel like I have the talent to, to meet my ambition to write this sort of historical crime story. Um, but I'm just not sure how I want to approach it, whether I want to adapted for television or if I want to um, just do a book. Both, double dip. There's that idea too. Yeah. There's that too. I mean, I can do both or maybe a graphic novel. Three things. And, and uh, I don't know. I was going to say audio book, but that's, that's <laughs> normal. Maybe a play. Maybe a play. Um, maybe a scratch and sniff. <laughs> it is interesting that idea that you, you – you have something you want to do, but you just don't have the the chops for it yet. And yeah. I mean, I knew I didn't have the chops to write Gangsterland when I first had the idea. I knew that. Um, you know, I first had the idea for it when I wrote the short story Mitzvah, which I wrote in 2009. And it took me a long time. It took me another five years before that book came out because I had to go learn how to be like, I, I need to learn Judaism. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, as you know, and as many in the audience know, like I'm, I'm a I'm a cultural Jew, but I don't like I don't. Prior to writing these books, I didn't know the ins and the outs of the midrash. But if I'm going to write about a rabbi, I had to learn that shit, and so it really took me a long time um, to to get the knowledge to write that character, and that was fine. You know, again, it was a it was a bit of a champagne problem. I was writing other books; it was fine. Um, and then when I was ready, I was ready, and I knew it. Right, the ins and the outs of the midrash is a Beastie Boys album. Yeah, it's on. Uh, it's on to the five boroughs. So, 
<laughs> right after uh, three DJs or three MCs and one DJ. Mm. Uh, here's a good question from uh, Mr. Jamison Stoltz. Oh, hi, Jameson. All the way from the Bronx. Uh, would you describe these short stories as the full-size Halloween candy bar of literature? How dare you? Um, <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, I'll, I will give an honest question to a, a triggering question. Look, here's the thing. For, first and foremost, when Halloween is back, I am a full-size house. If you people don't choose to be a full-size house, you're you're playing yourself. You could be a legend if you're the full-size house. It costs you like 30 bucks. Spend 30 bucks. Get Twixes. Um, you know, for me, if I didn't um, like nice stuff or food <laughs> or <laughs> this house, I would only write short stories. Um, because for me, it actually is the full-size candy bar of literature because you can do so many things. You can have a Twix one day, a bit of honey, the next, a Charleston chew, a crackle, a Mr. Good bar. You can do any of those things. And, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is how many more novels do I have in me in my life? Probably 10, but I might have 200 short stories. And don't forget nonfiction. And nonfiction. You got to tell the story of your mom. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of sad essays to give all of you. Uh, don't don't feel like you're going to get away scot-free from the rest of my life of sad essays. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Well, he, here's a question about uh, television from Anna L. Loop. Who'd you sell the tea rights to? Oh, uh, Amazon. All right, well, that was, that was a really Seattle. good answer. Um, let's see. Uh, Liska Jacobs uh, says, my very straight-laced mother-in-law adores your books, and I'm curious if your readers ever surprise you or do you see a pattern? Um, the, my readers do surprise me, that's for sure. Um, you know, today, as I just tweeted a moment ago, um, I got a letter from uh, from LA County Jail. <laughs> that was surprising. Um, you know, I think the commonality is people that like to laugh a little bit in their in their crime fiction. Um, people that don't take themselves too terribly seriously. That seems to be a, a commonality. People who are not offended easily. I did do a book club recently where a woman said. I have to say I was a little offended by the language in this. And I said, well, when you bought the book with the man turning into a gun on the cover called Gangsterland, did you think people weren't going to say the word fuck? <laughs> and then the book club ended. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, those pearl clutchers. But I'll, I'll tell you the best part, though, is um, is the rabbis. I just love the rabbis. I get I have so many rabbi fans now, and I'm not saying rabbi, I'm saying rabbi. <laughs> um, I I really love to hear from them because they you know they find what I'm doing amusing, um, but then they also have crazy stories and ideas for um, for cons. Uh, they always know interesting weird things that um, that we can do. Um, and you know I I'm also then fascinated by the ones who also think that I'm Lee. And don't realize that we're two different people, that we're just all one guy. <laughs> That's always a surprise. I meet that person more often at the book festival than, um, than online. They're like, I came to your talk, and I thought you were going to talk about diagnosis and murder. It turns out you're an entirely different person. I don't know why I'm using that accent, because um, they're not from Texas, whoever these people are. But it's fun to use that when mocking people. Um, that's that's because we're coastal elites. Right, I'm a coastal elite. Um, so that's always amusing. Like, I, I just thought you were the same guy all of a sudden. Yeah, so, yeah, my, my. Uh, I, I'm gonna let me be the first to tell you that sad essays by Todd Goldberger is coming from Counterpoint in 2030. Oh, the editor forward. just confirmed it. Perfect. So I'm looking start, forward to that. Start sobbing. Um, you know, I, I have to tell you, the last essay that I wrote, which I did for Crime Reads, um, was actually sort of instructive for me. So I'd always known that, you know, I had grown up around weird, violent crimes my entire life. Like that was just sort of a, a fact. 
And I had known that the the East Area Rapist had hit somewhere near our house when I was a kid growing up, but I hadn't really thought about it in years and years. But it was this thing that my mom used to say, like, lock the doors or else the East Bay Rapist is going to break in. Because we called him the East Bay Rapist in Walnut Creek. He was the East Area Rapist up in Sacramento. And so then I went and I looked at the map of every place that the the guy who became the Golden State Killer had hit. And I was like, oh, my God, the reason my mom said that is that two kids were raped and assaulted, like, on our block. And, like, that was just a thing that happened and had sort of just drifted into the background of my mind. And so trying to figure out, like, why I am as I am, which is also something I pay a woman $30 every time I visit to figure out. Um, is that the copay or the? Yeah, that's the copay. Okay. Um, and having that as just sort of a, like a, a dangling participle of my life, uh, really started, like, it really has made me wonder, like, what else have I forgotten that was just lurid and strange about my childhood? And and that will be an essay in Lit Hub next, next year at this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could, we'll have to compare lurid and strange childhoods. Yes, I'm prepared at any time. I think it's, it's uh, part of the... Training to be a writer is maybe. I mean, no one that I know that had a really happy life is a writer. I mean, and I'm, scene. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm trying to think. Do are any of our friends that are writers that they've been like, my life is pretty normal. Yeah, loved it. Parents were great. <laughs> Nothing weird happened to camp. We'll have to send out a, uh, uh, a questionnaire at the start of spring quarter. Yeah. <laughs> How fucked up are you? One to 10. <laughs> Strongly agree. Agree. Like six neutral. is a lifetime movie. One is a limited series doc on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. <clears throat> Sorry. It's all right. Uh, well, here's one. How did you get involved with Burn Notice? And did you like the TV series? Would you revisit it in a future novel? Um, I'll take the last part first. No, I would not. Um, and not for any bad reason. Um, so the, re the way I got involved with Burn Notice is that the creator of Burn Notice, uh, Matt Nix, um, is an old friend of mine. Um, we had even known each other as kids and had sort of forgotten about it. He had grown up here in the desert. His dad had been the principal of a private school in Palm Desert. And then we reconnected in college. He was uh, my best friend's roommate at UCLA. And so we had sort of circled around each other's lives for many, many years. And when um, Penguin came to Matt and said that they wanted to turn Burn Notice into a series of books, um, Matt basically said, I want Todd to do it. And I had never... This is this is this doesn't leave this room. Even though my brother had written tie-in novels, I'd never read one before. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had I had like I mean like I read the ET book right like when I was nine, but I'd never read any of these things before. Um, and but I had I loved Burn Notice. I absolutely loved Burn Notice. The first season of Burn Notice, I watched it religiously. Um, because it's like an Elmore Letter novel, you know, it's just, it's funny, it's sexy, it's weird, the, the comedy's strange, the villains are, are strange. Jeffrey Donovan as Michael Weston, like, if he gets punched and gets cut in episode two, he's still got a cut on his face, like, he doesn't heal. And I love that, you know, it, it makes him a believable Rockford-style um, main character, and, and that's appealing to me, uh, because there's some, some realism there. So um, when Matt asked me if I wanted to do it, I sort of hemmed and hawed for a little bit, and we, we decided, all right, like, let's just sit down and talk about it. And I said to Matt, well, here's how I want to write him. I want to write him like an Elmer Leonard novel. I want him to be fast and funny, and I want them to stand alone. And I'm not really going to pay attention to the season so much. I'm just going to write these as, as evergreen books. And Matt was like, that sounds great. <laughs> and so I did that. You know, I wrote five of them. And... Um, it was, in fact, my graduate school in creative writing for crime fiction. You know, at that time, I was not a commercial crime writer. I was writing, right. you know, 
basically literary fiction that had a gun in it oftentimes, but not commercial crime. And I knew that I wanted to make a shift in my career to more commercial crime fiction. I also knew that that comes with some challenges, which is like not having an audience already and being five books into my career seems like a strange choice to make. And so what those bird notice books did for me is they gave me an immediate audience. You know, those books sold really well. Um, I enjoyed writing them. I enjoyed meeting all the fans. Matt was great to me. All the bird notice folks were great to me. It was a, just a fantastic experience. And they offered to let me write bird notice books for the rest of my life if I wanted to. Um, because you can just do them evergreen. You can be a James Bond if you want them to be. Um, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> so I didn't. Um, really, because a prisoner cannot free himself. A prisoner cannot free himself. But from burn notice contracts. Nevertheless, you know, just walking around my house, Michael Weston is in my head all the time. You know, like I'll be, the dog will be outside and I'll be like, when you're a spy and your dog's barking, one of two things is about to happen. Cartel gangsters are attacking the house or there's a breeze. And I'm like, why am I narrating my life? Like I'm Michael fucking Weston. What is happening to me? But it's always right there. It's always right there. I see Emily has appeared. Emily's like, could these two dudes stop yes, talking? Hi. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, exactly what I'm thinking. No, I just am here to say we have time for one more okay. question. Um, and yeah, let's, see what, let's see what we got. Um, uh, someone says, are there any pianos in the book? So Alex Espinoza has clearly arrived in the chat. <laughs> there are, <laughs> there are no pianos in this story. We'll take one more question. <laughs> I think this is about dream casting. Who would you like to see play your main character? Well, so for um, The Low Desert, this fantastic book of stories. I, can you order that on that green button right here? You can. And I would really appreciate that if you'd order it from Skylight Books. They, let me just say something briefly that's true and, and meaningful. These fucking bookstores, man, are saving people's lives during the pandemic. Yeah. If we didn't have bookstores, where would we be? I've got, I've, I have so many books that I've ordered in the last 18 months or however long we've been at home. Um, so you guys are doing great work. We really appreciate it, Emily, um, and that you guys are doing events and everything. Um, so for The Low Desert, available now, and I've seen my sales report, and I know how many friends I have. Not all of you have bought the book yet. Um, I did. Yeah, thank, thank you, Mark. I sent you one, too. Um, oh, yeah. In the story, The Royal Californian, which in my mind should be a movie tomorrow, all I want in my life is to see Ryan Reynolds playing the main character, standing in a karaoke bar, singing Brick. That's all I want. That's all I want in my entire life. Can we do that? Do we know Ryan Reynolds? Uh, no. No, shit. I wouldn't but, mind, uh, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind Chris Pine as Morris Drew in the low desert. I think that would be nice. Hmm. He'd be good for that. Um, who else? Um, George Clooney and Out of Sight in all of them. <laughs> Sam Rockwell. Like, you know, one of those things I always think about is that someone asked me recently, maybe it was for an interview, like, what, what are your stories about without saying what they're about? And I'm like, they're about those movies where George Clooney or Sam Rockwell is a guy you shouldn't trust, but you do. <laughs> yeah, That's excellent. Yeah. So Sam Rockwell would be wonderful. For anything. And then also to get the entire cast of Galaxy Quest back for something would be great too. Except for Dream Alan. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think those sound all like all amazing casting choices. I, would, I can see Sam Rockwell doing it for sure. But I, Sam I Rockwell could be in the Royal California also. Yeah, absolutely. Star cast. I got right something there. to do tomorrow when I talk to my agent. <laughs> yeah, start pitching him. He's, you're like, I know exactly who I want for the part. I'm on it. 
Well, thank you guys so much. Again, you can purchase Todd Goldberg's book, The Low Desert, as you just said, with the button below um, on our website. You can also find it in our stores. Um, and thank you so much to Mark Haskell-Smith for joining us as well. And please look forward to his new book this year as well. Can't wait. Yeah, it'll be great. We have an event coming up for that as well, so keep stay tuned to all our great virtual events. You can always find things back here on this page so you can watch this talk again and again. You know, really try and find those Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks to see all y'all in the chat. Thank you. You yeah. lunatics. Have a great <laughs> night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.